Welcome to the Hail to the District podcast with your host, Rajan Nanavati. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Hail to the District podcast. This is Rajan. Uh, Pat and I didn't get a chance to connect this week because we could not get our schedules aligned, so I wanted to make sure I dropped a few thoughts coming off of Washington's second straight win in two weeks in the form of a 27-21 defeat of the Carolina Panthers. Um, There's a lot to unpack from this game in a variety of directions. Of course, being a fan, it's really, really hard to not start really putting the cart way ahead of the proverbial horse in all of this situation or in this situation and all the things that are surrounding it. But um, just starting with the game for a second against Carolina, um, let's just, just dive right in. And from that perspective, this was a game that actually, in all honesty, wasn't as close as the final score would indicate, in my opinion. Now, usually as Washington fans, we're on the wrong side of such outcomes in terms of losing a game that looks better on the scoreboard than the way Washington actually played. But in a delightful twist, it was actually Washington who, in my opinion, very handily outplayed the Panthers yesterday on Sunday. I'm recording this late on Monday evening. I mean, yeah, the game started with that dreaded sense of familiarity in terms of Carolina walking the ball down the field with a nine-play, 75-yard drive, and then, of course, Washington responding with the three and out. Um, I thought it was interesting because, uh, like we've seen in many games prior this season, and frankly, a lot of times last season as well, um, the opposing team came out with a really, really good opening script and you know punched Washington in the mouth. But as the rest of the game kind of wore on, Washington was able to adjust and, uh, and, and, and really clamp down on whatever the opposing team did best. And to that end, I think offensive coordinator Joe Brady of the Panthers uh, scripted a brilliant first series of the game, if I'm being honest. But I really wasn't impressed with anything they did after that. Uh, but we're going to get back to Carolina's offense against Washington's defense in a little bit. So let's just put a pin on that. Um, but in terms of Washington's offense, after starting the game with a three and out, consider the fact that if it wasn't for Antonio Gibson's fumble on Washington's second drive, Washington would have actually, Washington would have actually scored points on three of their four ensuing drives after the three and out in the first half. And that's not even mentioning the touchdown on the opening drive of the second half. And a lot of that, I would have to say, was spurred by the fact that Washington's offensive line played absolutely out of their mind yesterday. It was amazing to watch. Um, Brian Baldinger, his Baldy's Tweets account, did a, had a multiple clips talking about how well Washington's offensive, play, offensive line played. I strongly urge you to go check them out. I'm going to be repeating parts of what he said, of course, or curating whatever he said. But in that regard... Um, Ted Larson, Wes Schweitzer, Eric Flowers, Charles Leno, Sam Cosme, and of course Brandon Scherf, they simply dominated a formidable defensive front line of Carolina. They shoved around the Panthers seemingly at will at times, opening up some gaping holes for Antonio Gibson, J.D. McKissick, and Jared Patterson. It is not a coincidence that the three of them combined for 33 carries for 164 yards. Uh, I also want to give a shout out to rookie tight end John Bates. Um, I'm actually going to go as far as saying that in just his second NFL starts, Bates is already one of the best blocking tight ends in the NFL. We knew that was a strength of his coming out of Boise State, 
and it's clearly and very immediately translated at the next level. He had numerous blocks, uh, seal blocks, downfield blocks, whatever the hell you want to call them, that were directly attributable to some of the big chunk plays that the aforementioned running backs picked up. He was wonderful. And when you listen to, or if you go back and you watch the Baldi's Tweets clips, when you're having someone compare him to Don Warren right off the bat, those are pretty big shoes to fill. And, uh, you know, hyperbole aside, he blocked his ass off. And, and, and that comparison is not completely ridiculous, if not just slightly ridiculous, considering Don Warren's a fucking legend. Um, but getting back to the point, uh, in their postgame podcast, which, again, I think John Kahn's post podcast and covering the Washington football team is as good as there is or better than anybody else's just right off the bat. Um, I was listening to it today and Kime talked about this with a uh, local play-by-play guy, Bram Weinstein, uh, Weinstein, Weinstein. Anyway, apologies for mispronouncing it. Um, to the point about the running backs, we're starting to see this offense develop much more of that ground and pound identity. Obviously, everything flows through the running game, or when things do flow through the running game, everything works well. We are not the Kansas City Chiefs with Pat Mahomes at his peak or nadir in terms of being able to kind of just pick up these massive chunk plays at the drop of the hat. Uh, Conversely, as Nikki Javala of The Post pointed out, we have six scoring drives, four touchdowns, and two field goals that span 10 plays or more over the last two games. That's the most of any team in the span. We are death by paper cut. We are death by body blow, however you want to phrase it. The offense clearly works when the run game gets going. But Washington does have the ability to use either Terry McLaurin to attack defenses who try to just go mano a mano and keep everything in front of us, or they can spread their ball around with the array of glue guys that they've assembled around Heineke and McLaurin. I mean, think about what's happened over the last few weeks, if not more. DeAndre Carter has a touchdown catch in three straight games. Cam Sims caught a touchdown pass on Sunday. Bates, a rookie tight end, the third string tight end, if you will, behind Logan Thomas and Ricky Seals-Jones, he was the second most targeted pass catcher for Washington. Adam Humphreys and Dax Milne continue to contribute. So while McLaurin might be the centerpiece of this passing attack, unlike what we saw for the second half of last year, it's becoming harder and harder for teams to simply rely on shutting him down because we're finding the resourcefulness or we have the resourcefulness of getting the ball out to other people. I mean, think about that fourth down play, that Farvian backhanded throw that Heineke made to Bates, uh, you know, rolling out and that was Bates doing a lot of the legwork coming back to go get that ball but we'll talk about Heineke more in a second I want to touch on McLaurin because you know we might be at the point where we're running out of superlatives to use when describing him I mean every time Pat and I do a podcast we're talking about you know the up players for Washington the you know guys who did well McLaurin's name is almost always at the top of the list him and Gibson so since I really have nothing more original to say about McLaurin that I probably haven't said already, I'm just going to leave it with this that I think is a mostly original thought. Um, there aren't 10 wide receivers in the NFL that I would take if I was starting an NFL team or starting a football team that I would take over Terry McLaurin, and I can prove that to you. If you wanted to go down the list, there's Devontae Adams, DeAndre Hopkins, and Tyree Kill, who are the elite tier, the best in the game right now. You probably have to throw in Stefan Diggs and Keenan Allen in that second tier of guys. And then you probably have to throw in DK Metcalf and Mike Evans into the conversation because of their physical dominance or their, you know, just their size and wingspan and, uh, and the physical tools that they have. 
But after that, there aren't any receivers in the league that I would take over McLaurin. And I think I named eight. So at worst, at worst, you've got McLaurin at number nine. I would not take A.J. Brown over Terry McLaurin, not Cooper Cup. Wouldn't take Chris Godwin. And I can't really think of anyone else, to be honest with you. Uh, on Sunday, McLaurin finished with seven catches for 103 yards and a touchdown. And that was largely because Carolina decided to employ this self-flagellating strategy of trying to cover him one-on-one without really rolling coverage in his direction. So good on them for doing that. Uh, you want to cut your nose to spite your face? Go go on right ahead. No problem by ours, by our end, I should say. Uh, but McLaurin would have actually finished with season highs in receiving yards and touchdowns in the fourth quarter if it wasn't for that one uh, in the game if it wasn't for that fourth quarter throw that Heineke just missed him as he was streaking the back left of the end zone. Now coming back to Heineke, who I've kind of conspicuously left out in the highlights of this, uh, that's not to throw shade or anything like that. I love Taylor Heineke through all the ups and downs. It's really hard to not love the dude. I continue to be seduced by the idea that there's something there, uh, you know, especially with the comments made by Ron Rivera on the Monday presser today, where he was talking about how the game was slowing down for him, and how Heineke is starting to play with anticipation versus simply reacting and being a gunslinger. To me, that's arguably the biggest light bulb moment for any young quarterback's development. And we've said this countless times, Pat and I, when we're talking about Heineke, it bears repeating once more. This was his 11th NFL start. I think 11th and regular season start. I can't remember if I counted Tampa Bay in that number, regardless. Through those 11 starts, he's already rode the wave of highs and lows, and he's gotten better after facing a good deal of adversity. Think about how bad he played against Buffalo. Think about the gaffes he made against Green Bay. He's had a couple of stink bombs, and yet he's able to ride those out and come back and play like the way he has over the last two weeks, again against Tampa and against Carolina this past Sunday. He makes big-time throws. He plays with enormous cojones. His teammates absolutely love him and rally around him, and he does what this offense asks of him. I don't want to fall back in the trap of thinking that we've got like this poor man's Kurt Warner, but it's really, really hard not to get excited about what Heineke gives you on any given Sunday. Pardon the cliche. But there's inevitably going to be much more conversation about Heineke moving forward, especially as Pat and I continue to do this and talk about him. So we'll just leave things there. And I actually want to circle back and make sure that I give the defense their due because for all of the angry yelling that I have partaken in over the course of the first half of the season um for the second straight week the defense turned a or put out a very very strong performance um one example of that as jp finley tweeted out uh, earlier today washington's defense has only allowed washington's defense allowed only two third down conversions against carolina that was the fewest they've held an opponent to in something like three years it was like a mid-season win against the giants in 2018 so take that for what it's worth. It was the second straight week um, which Washington's coaching staff, A, employed a very good strategy against the opposing offense, and B, more importantly, had the players or coached the players, if you will, to actually execute the assignments and the responsibilities within that scheme to a, at a very high level. To the point of execution, um, again, going back to the Baldinger tweets and videos and things like that, I wanted to further highlight both of Washington's fourth down stops uh, that they had. 
So let's start with the fourth and three play. That was the Christian McCaffrey um, catch that ended just that was tackled that had had him being tackled right before the first down marker. On that fourth and three play, I'm sure many of you saw it, but if you watch really closely, backup defensive end Casey Tuhill starts up the field as if he's rushing, and then he kind of stops and veers off and he chips McCaffrey and he reroutes McCaffrey's release. It was 100% intentional. And in that re in that in that chip, he slows McCaffrey from you know kind of getting out into space in proper timing. Now McCaffrey adjusts, but that split second in which his momentum was stopped allowed Cam Curl to close on McCaffrey as he was trying to flatten his route, and that allowed McCaffrey excuse me that allowed Curl to make that fantastic open field tackle that was just behind the first down marker. Uh, going to the fourth and two play, which was effectively the last play of the game for the Panthers. Um, if you watch closely again, Deron Payne stacks his linemen at the line of scrimmage without getting too far upfield and letting Newton escape the pocket, or without getting too far upfield and creating a lane in which Newton could eject from the pocket and pick up the fourth down. Uh, he kind of waits and sees what Newton does. And only when Newton gets like 10 yards deep into the pocket and he real and Payne realizes that there's not really a viable eject route for him, you could kind of watch him and he says like, okay, now I know I can rush. He just hucks this, his lineman to the side with a swim move and he just goes barreling down onto Newton. Newton tries to climb up in the pocket, and I'll explain why in a second, and he basically walks right into uh, Deron Payne's arms as well as James James Smith-Williams' arms, and Smith-Williams also did a really good job of making sure to stay in his lane and not overrush, thereby keeping Newton in the pocket. Now, why did Newton decide to eject from the pocket versus without trying to throw the ball? Well, Carolina actually had a really good play call to get reserve receiver Brandon Zilstra alone in the middle of the field uh, via a crossing route that was designed to beat man coverage. And it actually almost worked as well because if you watch, uh, Zilstra was split far left and then Marshall was slot left. So Marshall ran ran a deep route, clearing Kendall Fuller out of the way. And Zilstra ran a drag route down the middle of the field. And on a drag route, you know, when you get it running that way, you can. and he was lined up man-on-man against Danny Johnson, uh, he basically beat him off the line, and he got ahead of him, and Johnson actually fell down in coverage. So in any other situation, Zilstra would have been wide open. But Cole Holcomb, who was playing zone in the middle of the field to take away any crossers or any mesh types of routes, he stays in position. He doesn't bite on Newton trying to escape, or he doesn't get zealous in trying to go chase after Newton. He stays there, he stays at home, and he basically took away that crossing route that Newton was looking for in Zilstra, and that forced Newton to A, hold on to the ball, and then B, kind of eject when he realized there was nothing else because the rest of Washington's secondary did a really good job in coverage. Uh... It, it just reiterating, it was the second straight week that Payne and Jonathan Allen caused all sorts of problems along the interior of the opposing offense. There were countless plays in additions to the one that I just mentioned in which they blew up the play simply by collapsing the pocket in front of them. Um, Holcomb was asked to do a ton of shadowing on McCaffrey. If you really go back and watch, that is a far from enviable assignment for anyone, and you have to give a lot of credit to the performance of Holcomb in that situation. Um, Similarly, I touched on Cam Curl. Um, Pat said it best, I think, in last week's podcast episode. uh, It's a damn shame that it took our coaching staff this long to realize that our defense is better with Curl on the field because it is that brutally obvious. Um, 
he was so instrumental as well in also limiting how much uh, damage that McCaffrey did. They consistently bracketed him for so much of the game. In fact, that one touchdown pass that Newton threw to McCaffrey was just an absolute rocket in between that bracket coverage that, you know, nine out of ten times, no quarterback is going to dare make that throw. Uh, Newton just trusted his arm strength and his, you know, and, and the velocity in which he can throw the ball to make that, and it turned out to be a great throw. But in any other situation, they played great coverage, and they did about as well as anybody could expect given the situation or given the responsibility of trying to take away McCaffrey as a pass catcher in the open field. So with all of that being said, the question now becomes, can the defense pull off the proverbial hat trick and limit yet another offense that has a ton of star power, even if it is struggling? Uh, Washington obviously plays the Seattle Seahawks next Monday. Seattle scored a grand total of 13 points in their last two games. That's comprised of one touchdown and two field goals uh, in the game since Russell Wilson's return from a hand or finger injury or whatever the hell it is. Um, Seattle is averaging less than 240 yards of offense per game over the last two weeks. Wilson is averaging less than 5.6 yards per attempt over the last two weeks. And that is despite the fact that he gets to throw the ball to DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett. Now, you have to imagine that Wilson can't or won't struggle for that much longer. He's just going to become Russell Wilson at some point. And we all know that Washington, especially on Monday night, has a bad habit of being the get-right team for opponents. But a win on Monday night football against Seattle would be an enormous statement coming off the last two wins that we've had, considering this game is at home and FedEx Field is an absolute house of horrors for Washington when we play on Monday night football. Now indulge me for a second, and let's say that Washington bucks their horrible, horrible trend, and they beat Seattle, and now you're looking at a 5-6 and six record. After that, Washington travels to Vegas to take on the Raiders, the game that me and my friends were supposed to go visit, was supposed to go see in person, but unfortunately plans fell apart for that. But that notwithstanding, uh, after starting the season with three straight wins, the Raiders are 2-5 and five over their last seven games. They're giving up an average of 32 points per game over their current three-game losing streak, and now they're asking questions about whether they should bench Derek Carr and put in Marcus Mariota. In other words, as fathomable as you know, they were pl- they were playing as good as football as anyone for the first you know quarter to six games of the year, and the bottom fell out, especially with the Gruden hi- uh, firing. Although I don't think that was a bad thing for them in the long run, but nonetheless. As unfathomable as this may have seemed at one point in time, there's a very clear roadmap to Washington being a 500 team come the first Monday of December. So we're clearly at a fascinating juncture of things right now. Uh, Pat tweeted this out from the Hail to the District Twitter account. Ron Rivera, to date, as the head coach of the Washington football team, is 4-11 in the months of September and October. But he's 7-4 and in the months between November and January. And if you really want to parse semantics, two of those four losses were directly attributable to Washington being forced to start the diarrhea taco salad that is Dwayne Haskins. So as of today, even putting the cart ahead of the horse aside with the two hypothetical wins, there's a mosh pit of teams actually comprised of Minnesota, New Orleans, San Francisco, Philadelphia, Carolina, and us, even today, fighting or jockeying for those last two playoff spots in the NFC. Every one of those teams mentioned is either 5-5, five 5-6, five, five or 4-6. and six. 
Washington obviously loses head-to-head tiebreakers thanks to that awful loss in New Orleans, but now we have a head-to-head tiebreaker win over Carolina. Of course, we also have to end the season with the five games against all of the NFC East opponents, including both games against Dallas and Philadelphia, meaning there's a lot of football left and a lot of things can happen, but a lot of things can happen in either direction. So it's really hard to not both enjoy this win and get irrationally excited about where things could lead. Because once again, just when we really tried to quit this Washington team and extricate them from our lives for good, given all the losing and the suffering and pain and and, and teeth gnashing that they caused us, they find a way to suck us right back in. Because that's the curse we're dealt dealing, uh, that's the curse we're dealt rooting for this Washington football team. Um, But I guess we could be having this conversation in much different circumstances. So... On to Seattle next Monday, and I think I'll, we'll absolutely lose our shit if we beat the Seahawks on Monday Night Football. Considering our track record on Monday Night Football and considering Pat getting to rub it into his wife and family who are all Seattle fans, thanks for growing up over there. But all of that notwithstanding, uh, thank you so much for listening. Hope you guys have subscribed to us subscribe to our podcast Uh, if you haven't make sure you do so either via soundcloud or itunes or wherever else you get your podcasts Um, until then thank you once again for listening and i will talk to you guys later thank you for listening to the hail to the district podcast be sure to subscribe to us on itunes or wherever you download your podcasts